Welcome back to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gil Perrott, and today's topic deals with azithromycin, COPD, and the heart. We all like a good story, and I think the story of azithromycin has become intriguing in the recent past. For a while, we wondered if it could prevent atherosclerotic heart disease. There was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, April 21st, 2005, addressing that issue titled Azithromycin for the Secondary Prevention of Coronary Events. But the conclusion of that study was a one-year course of weekly azithromycin did not alter the risk of cardiac events among patients with stable coronary artery disease. For those of you who may not know the interesting hypothesis behind the study, there actually was a clever rationale. I will quote the introduction by the authors where they explain, The presence of chlamydia pneumoniae in atherosclerotic lesions raises the possibility that antibiotic treatment might have a favorable effect on the course of coronary heart disease. A trial of antibiotic treatment in humans would be justified because of the public health importance of coronary heart disease. Moreover, it should be safe for the participants. Prior studies of both short and long-term administration of macrolide antibiotics, including azolides, have shown few adverse reactions. But, again, giving azithromycin didn't prevent coronary artery disease, and actually since that study, we have learned there can be some serious adverse reactions, but still an interesting idea, and I commend them for doing that study. I think most of us forgot about that study until this year, when on May 17, 2012, another New England Journal of Medicine study was published, and that was titled Azithromycin and the Risk of Cardiovascular Death. It was a retrospective cohort study of mortality among patients who took azithromycin, And as somebody who is a tiny but nevertheless a contributor to the 55.3 million azithromycin prescriptions healthcare providers wrote just in the last year alone for that single drug, the conclusion of that study definitely caught my attention. And the conclusion was, during five days of azithromycin therapy, there was a small, absolute increase in cardiovascular deaths which was most pronounced among patients with a high baseline risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, that excess cardiovascular death was compared to those who received amoxicillin. And yes, we don't want to give too much importance to a retrospective cohort study. However, needless to say, that result was a bit worse outcome than having a protective effect on the heart. Unfortunately, the side effects of medications is rarely extreme awesomeness or orgasms, but when the side effect is fatality, that always perks our ears. Remember that I said the title of that May 2012 study was Azithromycin and the Risk of Cardiovascular Death. The popular press can be a bit more plain-spoken with their captions. The New York Times on May 16, 2012 had a somewhat lengthy piece titled popular antibiotic may raise risk of sudden death. And your patients are more likely to read that article in an internet search than the New England Journal of Medicine. But why did the authors want to even look at this possibility of adverse cardiac events 
in a drug that has been around so long it is already available as a generic. Using the author's own words as rationale, their introduction to the study explained, and I'm quoting them, Azithromycin, a broad-spectrum macrolide antibiotic, has been reported to be relatively free of cardiotoxic effects. However, the closely related drugs erythromycin and clarithromycin can increase the risk of serious ventricular arrhythmias and are associated with an increased risk of sudden cardiac death. Furthermore, accumulating evidence suggests that azithromycin also may have proarrhythmic effects. There are at least seven published reports of patients with normal baseline QT intervals in whom azithromycin had arrhythmia-related adverse cardiac effects, including pronounced QT interval prolongation, torsade de points, and polymorphic ventricular tachycardia in the absence of QT interval prolongation. And so I don't think a take-home message should be that azithromycin has proven to be more dangerous than most of the antibiotics we use for respiratory illness. A less publicized finding from this paper was that all-cause mortality from azithromycin, as well as specific cardiovascular mortality, was very similar to levofloxacin. Obviously, we also use levoquin more than just a little for pulmonary infections. Maybe the biggest point is that prescribed drugs have danger, and the multitudes of doctors, nurse practitioners, and PAs who throw antibiotics at every viral infection or resolving bacterial infection are causing harm. I can tell you that my children, currently ages 8 and 4 years old, have so far never had an antibiotic, despite their share of fevers in Montessori and elementary school. I did let the pediatrician prescribe the antiviral acyclovir for a mild case of shingles for one of my boys, but for all their sore throats and ear infections and conjunctivitis episodes, they survive the natural way, and I myself have not had an antibiotic since childhood. I really don't mean to say these personal details as a I am holier than thou chiding. Do I prescribe antibiotics? Yes, of course, as I frequently see serious bacterial infections. And someday my kids and I will really need antibiotics, and we will take them. There are plenty of times antibiotics are great in less serious infections like UTIs or even a bad case of acne that hasn't responded to other measures, and I'm fine with that too. But their liberal overuse to make sure every patient with a cold leaves the office with a satisfied feeling that they got something is a shame. I think it's a good time to pause and remind ourselves about some basic pharmacology of azithromycin. It's a macrolide, often used for respiratory infections, certain sexually transmitted diseases like chlamydia and gonorrhea, and sometimes for certain mycobacteria. Reminds me that a few nights ago I was reviewing one of my dictated assessments in the hospital, and the transcriptionist had incorrectly made a typo where I dictated the patient has a severe case of bloody diarrhea, and the transcriptionist had put the word gonorrhea instead of diarrhea, and that is how embarrassing chart lore is born. Anyway, macrolides work by keeping certain bacteria from producing the proteins they need to survive. 
It does that by binding to the bacteria 50S unit of ribosomes. Therefore, macrolides are sometimes classified as protein synthesis inhibitors. Some bacteria have learned to become resistant by either altering the macrolide binding site on the ribosomal RNA or by using efflux pumps. An efflux pump is when the cell wall contains a pump to eliminate a certain chemical from the cell cytoplasm. For example, some varieties of Streptococcus pneumoniae, among other types of bacteria, have developed efflux pumps for macrolides like azithromycin. So take that, you folks who don't believe in evolution. I suppose it's like Neil deGrasse Tyson who once said, the good thing about science is it's true whether or not you believe in it. And one of those unfortunate truths is that rapid evolution has led to increasing macrolide resistance. One really cool fact about azithromycin is its serum concentrations are typically low, while the drug does concentrate to a high degree in tissue. So azithromycin levels in the lung can be up to 100 times those in the plasma, and it has a long-lasting intracellular half-life in tissues. That's why a short course of the drug, such as a five-day Z-pack, is often plenty because the azithromycin will be sticking around long after the last dose is given. The drug also accumulates in phagocytic cells. That's nice because when a neutrophil engulfs a bacteria, it's got the azithromycin in it to kill the sucker. Something to keep in mind, particularly when I start discussing the prophylactic use of azithromycin for COPD, is that many articles mention that azithromycin activity is not just as an antibiotic. It has both immunomodulatory and anti-inflammatory properties in addition to its antibacterial properties. For example, cytokine production in the lungs is decreased when you take azithromycin. Anyway, several speculate that the additional anti-inflammatory properties make it particularly intriguing as a long-term suppressing agent for certain chronic lung conditions. And, of course, azithromycin is not without its historical problems, and one of those risks is hepatotoxicity, sometimes to the degree of liver failure. Clostridium difficile is always a concern, as with most antibiotics, and if your patient does happen to get Stevens-Johnson syndrome, it can be a really bad case because of the long half-life. Now let's move on to talking about azithromycin and the lungs. In 2011, there was a study in the International Journal of COPD that starts on page 449 that concluded that long-term azithromycin use did decrease exacerbations of COPD. But it was a retrospective study, yet an important first study, about using azithromycin prophylactically for an entire year in the COPD population, and you can read it if you desire more details. Now let's take a more in-depth look at another recent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, August 25th, 2011, and this was a prospective, randomized trial and was titled Azithromycin 
for prevention of exacerbations of COPD. They gave patients either placebo or 250 milligrams of azithromycin every day for an entire year. And the conclusion I will quote from this trial was, among selected subjects with COPD, azithromycin taken daily for one year when added to usual treatment decreased the frequency of exacerbations and improved quality of life, but caused hearing decrements in a small percentage of subjects. Although this intervention could change microbial resistance patterns, the effect of this change is not known. And that's the end of the quote. The study is of equal interest to pulmonologists, outpatient providers, and hospitalists that see the same patient coming in with frequent COPD exacerbations. In an editorial that was accompanying the study, it was written by a Greek physician approximately named Dr. Siafakis, S-I-A-F-A-K-A-S, and he raises some riveting facts when he said, Severe acute exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease are devastating, life-threatening events. The 30-day mortality is greater than that with acute myocardial infarction. For COPD, the 30-day mortality after a severe exacerbation is 26%. For myocardial infarction, it's about 8%. Acute exacerbations of COPD dramatically change the course of the disease since they are associated with a rapid decline in lung function and worsening quality of life. And so that's the end of the quote. But those routine COPD exacerbations that you and I see almost every day as hospitalists really are consequential events, even more grave than myocardial infarction in several cases. And there are several points I want to share about certain details in the study. One thing that should be said is that azithromycin did not eliminate COPD exacerbations, but did decrease the frequency and the total number of exacerbations. Another thing worth mentioning relating to the heart disease issues I mentioned earlier is that they excluded anybody with QT interval prolongation from the trial, even though I did tell you earlier that azithromycin can cause QT prolongation death even when there isn't QT prolongation initially on the EKG. An additional important point would be that the trial lasted one year. Maybe in year two, the toxicities from chronic drug use would be worse. We just don't know. But it raises the question of what to do with these patients after a year. Do you keep them on azithromycin for the rest of their lives? Do you still prescribe 250 milligrams each day? Some doctors from Virginia Commonwealth University very recently wrote a well-done clinical therapeutics article in the July 26, 2012 New England Journal of Medicine, while they admit they don't have data to back them up, instead of daily dosing, their practice is to give 250 milligrams of azithromycin on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays since the lung tissues of the drug still stay adequately elevated with this less frequent regimen. And I think the logic behind that seems reasonable. Now, going back to important points raised in the study, that hearing decrement problem that the authors noted as a small percentage of people was actually 5% of people. 
So that's every one in 20 people you do this therapy for for a year will lose some hearing. So it, I think that's an important point. And another expected fact was the increased prevalence of macrolide-resistant bacteria colonizing the airway of those who did get azithromycin. Many of us are appropriately concerned about the chronic use of any antibiotic. Lyndon Johnson said, The guns and bombs, the rockets and the warships are all symbols of human failure. And to a large degree, I think we can say this is also true about much of the resistance we see with antibiotics because we way overuse them, not only in humans, but also in livestock. Azithromycin is potentially a case where we can indeed help individuals with frequent COPD exacerbation while potentially harming society. As doctors, we try and save the single sheep without regard to the herd. I observe that without the courage to voice a solution or ethical opinion, since I continue, like every doctor I know, to utilize resources often at the economic detriment and sometimes the health detriment of society. Now, it also needs to be acknowledged that maintenance antibiotics is something we do for many disease processes other than COPD. Azithromycin itself has been just one of the many antibiotics used in that manner. Azithromycin maintenance has been shown to help decrease exacerbations of cystic fibrosis and even improve lung function in that population, as studies in The Lancet in 1998 and in the journal called Thorax showed. In 2003, there's an interesting but very small study of lung transplant recipients who developed bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, which happens to be the leading cause of death in the pulmonary transplant population. And the data indicates there might be a role for azithromycin maintenance in that population if they do get bronchiolitis obliterans. Recurrent UTIs and other diseases such as chronic osteomyelitis that I discussed in another podcast and many other infections are prescribed chronic antibiotic therapy. Recurrent COPD exacerbations now seems to be one of those things we have to consider making what I think is a particularly challenging choice about maintenance antibiotics. And my hope is that this lecture helped give you a deeper appreciation of the risks and benefits of whatever choice you decide to make in your care of these patients. You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. Adios.